Welcome to the I Heart Africa Project podcast. This is episode number four. My name is Nikki. I run the I Heart Africa Project. I love Africa. It is a very special place to me. And I am putting together this project to showcase Africa in a very real capacity, providing insights into Africa from the perspectives of those who love the continent most. Its residents, wildlife heroes, conservationists, photographers, rangers, guides and tourists who all share their experiences and love of this beautiful continent. On today's episode, I'm talking with Donald Schultz. Now, some of you may recall seeing him on programs such as Venom in Vegas, on Animal Planet, or Venom Hunters, Wild Recon, or on the Discovery Channel Shark Week. Or you may just know him as the guy that lived in a glass box in the middle of the Las Vegas Strip with 100 snakes for 10 days. Either way, Donald has accomplished a lot and travelled all over the world for research. The South African filmmaker is a renowned snake expert, herpetologist, animal expert, writer and adrenaline junkie who now continues his research in anti-venom work at Snake Farm in South Africa. And on that note, it is my absolute pleasure to welcome Donald Schultz. Hi Donald. Hi Nikki. For those listening, can you please introduce yourself, tell us where you're from, and tell us a little bit about yourself. Okay, cool. Uh, my name is Donald Schultz. I'm from South Africa originally. I uh, lived in the States for 16 years or so, and living back in South Africa now, but travelled extensively for work, either through research or filmmaking or combination of both. Yeah. Um, and been a student of the, the natural world since I was a little kid, you know, like since five or six years old, I was catching snakes, so it's just seemed like a natural progression to do what I'm doing now. Awesome, awesome. And growing up in South Africa, what was that like? Um, you know, in the, like earliest memories as a kid in South Africa was, um, you know, there's a baboon that was actually shot at our school and it, it kind of influenced my life in a big way because first of all, I hated seeing animals getting hurt and second of all, you know, I need to educate myself to the point that I could stop human-animal conflict um, because, you know, regardless of the animal, it usually ends up in death for one or the other. Being a kid in Africa, having the ability to go look for snakes, go look for, you know, other animals around your house really, really influenced my life. And that's something I've, you know, pursued until um, now, you know, going to places specifically for what's there in the, in the plants and animal kingdom. I, I couldn't have grown up in a better place. The temperature's amazing, you know, for snakes. There's mambas and cobras and pythons and crocodiles and Nile monitors and all the things that, you know, a herpetologist would love. But then Durban is also pretty advanced as far as African countries go. Um, and where I grew up, there was a, a you know, 80 year old snake park that was instrumental in the development of antivenom um, back in the day. And so it was a, a, you know, a big opportunity to be able to live in an area that had both the academic and then the, the natural resources of things. So I read that at age six, you found a snake. Do you recall what type it was? Yeah, I remember the day vividly. Like it's, it's, I was actually just in the car with my eight-year-old nephew, and we were going to a hospital, and there was a bunch of birds attacking something on the ground. My dad and I ran over to it, and it was a, a Peter's worm snake, which is literally the smallest snake in the world. I mean, it's like you could, it looks like <laughs> the inside of a pencil lead. And it was like the only reason you would tell it was a snake is if you look really carefully, you could see its forked tongue. And so we saved it, and I had it for like one or two days. I walked around with it in my shirt and took it, you know, kept it home. And eventually my dad decided to take me to the snake park that I was talking about to go get it identified. And we walked in and my dad knew the guys. So we went into the back area, into the laboratory, and they looked at the snake. And the best pet, they eat ants. They don't get big. They you know, they look like worms. So he has a, a herald snake, which is a, a little bit bigger snake. And they, they have like a slight toxin, but nothing 
consequential. So I had my first like real snake after the worm snake. But as we were walking out, you know, we walked past the office area where I used to work and there was a Western Diamondback rattlesnake in a cage. Oh as God. we walked past, the rattlesnake started rattling. And it did something like really primal in me where I was like, oh, wow. I'm like, I've read about rattlesnakes or whatever, but actually seeing a rattlesnake, you know, in in reality in South Africa, you know, it just changed me. And so it's funny, it's, it's a snake that almost cost me my life later, in, you know, later on in my life. Yeah. But that was the, the genesis of like, being you know hyper obsessed with snakes and then after that it just you know it just cartwheeled to, to, to today what is it about them that drew you to them do you reckon at the time i didn't understand now like as a you know <laughs> year old I, I understand things a little bit better and i think it's you know there's been an amazing book recently that showed our visual cortex is a result of venomous snakes yep. so basically the reason we can see is our primitive ancestor would have Counters with venomous snakes, and venomous snakes have been around 25 million years, and so much longer than mammals. So, you know, the idea that, you know, we're wired to see and respect and fear snakes is, is something I only learned later, but it was something very, you know, apparent in me that, like, I had no experience with snakes, and then suddenly had this experience where it, where it fundamentally changed me, and I was like, oh, wow, there's something in you know, in us as people. And the thing that, you know, eventually stuck with me was like a snake that you could fit in the palm of your hand could kill you. Yeah. And it wasn't a, like, I don't want to say messy death. It wasn't, a, it, it's elegant. The way this, a snake kills you is extremely elegant. Like some people, you know, <laughs> when they get bitten and die, won't even wake up in their sleep. I mean, that's like, that's insane. That's chemical warfare. Wow. Um, so, so that for me was like a big thing where I was like, wow, this tiny little creature can end your life. And, you know, it, may or may not want to I, I don't know but the fact that that tiny little thing can do it it's, it's kind of like looking at a bullet for the first time it's, it's, it's just a weird thing where you're like oh wow but a bullet is man-made and it's it's not elegant you know yeah. whereas venom is extreme elegant and it's and really powerful so so that was the the you know the, the initiation into snakes yeah. and you know the toxin thing and, and a lot of the work at plants and entheogens you know things like ayahuasca and that started at the same time I was saw a documentary about beavers and I chewed on a plant in our house like a beaver just because that's what you do and <laughs> yep. my throat swelled, swelled shut and I almost died and I, I didn't understand what was going on I explained to my mom and, and it passed but it was a very scary experience and once again one of those like elegant toxin things and then later on in life I found out that the snake is uh, the, the plant is actually called snake plant or mother-in-law's tongue Oh wow! To feed to people to make their throat shut down. <laughs> like this, I found out now thirty years later. <laughs> but even at that young age, it was this experimentation of like what it's, it's unseen, right? I mean, like we yeah. can't really see snake venom. I mean, we can see it if you milk a snake and all that. But it's this unseen potential of what these things are. You know, the, mm-hmm. the old saying goes: any poison's a drug, any drug's a poison. It just depends on the dose. Yeah. Um, and that's kind of defined my my life since then. It's like. So what are these things? What are they good for? And when they're bad, you know, how can we fix them? I and mean, that's that's pretty much you know what's driven everything. Yeah. And so at the age of thirteen, you were accepted into an internship at Fitzsimmons Snake Park. Yeah. How did that take you from just a love of snakes and actually steer you in career path? Well, it's funny because uh, like in in a line like that, it sounds very elegant. The truth of it was, I just basically once I once I moved because my family moved around. So once we moved back to Durban, and I was. I don't know, yeah, 13 years old, stand four. I basically just went and, and got a, you could buy a pass to the snake park that would give you unlimited access if you adopted the snake. Yep. So I adopted the snake and was able to go to the snake park 
all the time. So basically after school, I'd catch a bus down to the snake park and just hang out. And on weekends, I'd just hang out. And as long as that let me in there, I'd just be there. And eventually the, the owner of the snake park called my mom and, and she's like, that we feel bad. He's hanging out and helping and whatnot. Like we want to pay him. <laughs> um, so that became the internship. And for the first three to six months, it was very much like working not on deadly snakes by myself, but definitely being present with people that were working with snakes, doing snake call-outs and that, yep. and just learning as much as I could. And then after that, and yeah, remember this is 1990s Africa, liability laws don't really exist. Mm-hmm. So when I was 14, I was like, hey, um, one day the, the manager called me, he's like, you know, jump in the pit and grab a worm slang, which is the most venomous snake in Africa. So I jumped and grabbed it, and the owner of the snake park was there, and, and he's like, tell me about it. I told him about it and grabbed a cobra, did the same thing. He's like, okay, cool, you can do demonstrations now. So, you know, when I was 14, I, I went from looking at snakes through glass to being the guy in the pit, you know, Steve Owens <laughs> in khakis and everything, you know, talking about venomous snakes. And then it really, like, changed, you know, how I viewed snakes as a career path because I was like, well, this is what I want to do. You know, I want to work with animals and educate people. Like, that's that's pretty much it. Yeah. And then the, the, the sort of the nail in the coffin for me was, was a summer afternoon and uh, it was an exceedingly boring class, whatever we were in at school. And it was like, you know, just, you know, I was just over it. And the principal came and called me out of the classroom. And I was like, oh, shit, not, 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 not now what? <laughs> and they were like, no, one of the parents has a snake in their house. Do you mind going to catch it? And I was like, absolutely not. So I went, you know, the parent drove me down to their house, caught the snake, drove back to school as school was ending. And I'd like missed the last part of class and I got a snake. Um, and these people were so grateful and the snake obviously didn't get hurt. And I was like, this is what I want to do. Like, this is my yeah. career. It may not exist, but I need to figure out how to do this more. Yeah. And that's, you know, that's it. There's a photo on my Instagram of me when I think I'm five years old, four or five years old, I'm wearing a Batman outfit and hugging <laughs> a dog. And okay. like thinking back then, I'm like, all I wanted to do was like help animals and fly. And, and today I'm at, you know, the drop zone, I'm going to fly wingsuits and, and, you know, help animals as much as I can. Yeah. I was like, well, yeah, I didn't, I didn't do too badly. Like it was a convoluted path, but it, it got me, yeah, eventually. <laughs> yeah, well, you are flying and you are saving animals, so. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> it's, it's like break it down to the basics. I'm like, oh yeah, cool, I, I'm, yeah, I'm good. Yeah, superhero, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. yeah. Okay, so you were born and raised in Durban. Then you spent yeah. 16 years living overseas, mainly in the States, where you were on various TV shows like Venom Hunter, Animal Intervention with Alison Eastwood, Wild Recon, and then you did Venom in Ve- Vegas. Well, I don't know chronological mm. order, but you did Venom in Vegas. Now, I've been to Vegas mm. several times, yeah. and you were putting yeah. the glass box across the road from C- um, Caesar's Palace, wasn't it? Yeah, Caesar's Palace. Yeah. yeah. Uh-huh. Where you cohabitated with 100 snakes, some of the most deadliest snakes in the world. Let's talk about that, because I'm personally yeah. petrified of snakes, but I also know very little about them. So was the point of this to highlight the human-snake conflict and raise awareness for snake conservation? I mean, what was yeah, was that your goal to, from this? Because it's quite an, an intimidating way you d- went about it. Exactly, and and you know the, the chronological. Basically, I and when we pitched the shows, um, we sold three of them all together. And one was a natural history series, one was was Wild Recon, and then one was uh, Venom in Vegas. And we did Venom in Vegas after we finished the the Wild Recon series. So we'd been to you know twenty countries and filming for two years, and just like really getting our asses handed to us. Like you know filming in the field and doing research is is pretty brutal. And when I saw yeah, when I sold the shows, I said to the guys, I was like, okay. I'll do the, I basically, at the end of the meeting, I said to him, I have an idea for, for you know, a guy in a box for 30 days with 30 snakes. And the 
exactly would love it. He's like, but you have to do it. I was like, well, buy the other shows and I'll do it because I know it's, it's exceedingly safe and it's, it's visually appealing and there's something archetypal about it. So essentially what happened was we got, you know, 100 snakes and we started with 50. We added uh, five each day till we got to 100, including mambas and cobras, rattlesnakes and gaboon vipers and that. And with my experience of, I'd never, like, done a sitting or lived with snakes, but they so, like, they so human like avoidance like they don't want anything to do with us and this is from years of trying to catch them and i realized it wasn't that naughty so you know when we spoke to to animal planet it was basically like to the public it seems like suicide to me it's totally safe and the reality is it's somewhere in between you know like there, there is a chance that something bad could go wrong but i realized that if you say to people don't be scared of snakes it's one thing if you say to them like look you can literally be in a room with a hundred snakes and they're not going to mess with you it's something entirely different and years later now, you know, we did that nine years ago. Yeah. People still walk up to me and they're like, I can't believe you did it. I'm like, well, that was the whole point is like anyone could do it. It's not like I have some super skill. It's just knowing, you know, what the snakes want. And the nice thing with, with snakes is they, you know, they're reptiles. They have a reptilian brain. So it's very simple. I mean, you know, be warm, get food, reproduce and like, you know, avoid injury, basically not have any ne negative stimuli, which is our reptilian brain that dictates all of those same things is also a reptilian brain. So understanding that, you know, and taking out the myth and, you know, fallacies and, and anthropomorphizing them, where you're looking at them as like having human characteristics, they are simple, you know, biosystems, basic input-output. You don't mess with them, they don't mess with you. You know, if you step on them, they may bite you. Um, they may not. So, you know, it's like entirely up to, to them. But just changing the perception of like how you can cohabitate with snakes. And now, you know, nine years later where I live, I mean, many of those same snakes, you know, puffeters, forest cobras, boomslung, vine snake, live where I live. Like literally not in a cage under control, but outside my house, and not even outside my house, outside where we sleep in the kitchen, and they live freely there. And, and no one really, you know, impacts each other. Like obviously we try and be mindful of them, and they're mindful of us, but you know, if something happened, like one was stepped on or cut or, you know, an animal bit or something, we fully expect that it would be, you know, it would react. It was a graphic demonstration, but also like really well thought out in the, in the way of like how, you know, what's a lot of people's worst fear? And it's, it's reptiles, snakes specifically. It's 60% of the population is scared of snakes. And it's like, well, for most people, the idea of sleeping in a room with a snake is scary. So it's like, well, let's put the scariest snakes in the world there and show people what would really happen. And, and I think the result was pretty good. I, I think it was a very good um, exercise. But how hard was it? Did you have to be super alert at all times? Like... I know I'm not, not at last. All. What's that? <laughs> it's so sad. It was it was one of the easiest things in my life. Oh, yeah? um, like the, the the hardest thing. Yeah, I mean, you know, there's two types of snakes, or three three types of snakes if you think of them. There's the, the ambush hunters, like they just sit and wait. So like death adders and puff adders, rattlesnakes. Those things are like kind of sit, wait, and and strike quickly. And then you get the the hunters, like mambas and taipans and pythons that go out and look for food. And then you get a combination of the two. But, you know, knowing that, the scariest snakes really are the puff adders and the, and the rattlesnakes because they'll just sit where they sit and if you get close to them, they'll bite you, whereas cobras and mambas and that will avoid you. And once you understand that, you know, you just kind of work around it and become, the snakes become easy. But living in a box watched by people for 240 hours <laughs> was that was more of a way more mentally like taxing than, than the reptiles uh which is vegas you know vegas doesn't sleep so three o'clock in the morning you have people screaming outside and and you know drunkenly doing their vegas thing and and you're trying to rest and then there was a jumbotron one of those big tvs right outside the the box i was living in and the deal with the big casinos is every three minutes they'll play a promo 
of you know my show wild recon and then venom in vegas so it was like a form of torture every three minutes my <laughs> voice would start on a 30 second loop by day six i think i got noise cancelling headphones because i just couldn't sleep and then the last couple of days like the sleep was really really hard and then that made like badging the snakes up a, a lot harder because you're tired and it's you know the end of the day and ex- you know, end of 10 days actually so so logistically it was difficult technically it was really easy like yeah. as, a, as a stunt goes or as a, as a thing goes what was was challenging was totally the human aspect you know like being mm. watched i mean you know people talk about animals in zoos and very few people actually have a perception of what that feels like um, and when you experience it, it is very <laughs> very bizarre i mean yeah. i walked into the, this glass box and laid in my bed and there's like 200 people to me in person and then two cameras you know streaming this onto the internet onto the discovery site yeah. and i was like i have no idea what to do yeah. I'm like, I, I just, I, like, what, what do you do? Do I do a song, a dance? <laughs> like, so I just sat down and started reading a book. I was like, okay, let, let me act natural. <laughs> I just sat down and read a book. And I was like, okay, this is, this is my life. It was, it was very, very bizarre. So it was a two-hour special. It's interesting watching it now. A lot of what I'm talking about is human-animal conflict yeah. and the need for new anti-venoms, yeah. which has like brought me to the past. Because it's, it's interesting. We filmed in Vegas, but we also filmed in Tanzania, kind of on the front lines of these snake bites where people have mambas in their house, not by choice, but just because of where they live. So yeah, it definitely, you know, it was like like most things it's so polar opposite vegas couldn't be more different from you know mamba in the bush but yeah they have different challenges oh absolutely yeah that wasn't part of the nitrous circus thing was it no no yeah that was that's i mean you know, as i said I, I always i've always liked action sports and motorcycles and all that so nitro circus yeah they've come to south africa twice and i've taken them around yeah. i mean we've done some pretty cool things you know we got a, a couple legal base jumps in the first in history on a, on a thing i'd actually jumped illegally a few years before in my hometown and then we got to you know dart a rhino and put a tracker on it the nitro circus we bought the tracker for conservation and you know work with some you know mambas and some crocodiles and some sharks and it was like really cool because like even travis you know he's like this fearless daredevil dude that you know has jumped the caesar's palace fountain funny enough mm-hmm. uh, but he's absolutely terrified of animals yeah so like you know seeing travis pastrana scared is a very rare thing and <laughs> every single time he was near animals he was just yeah you know, and he was vocal about it. he's like i don't like not being in control and it's like well that's what animals do is they they put you in your place you know yeah. we're not we're not the top of the food chain by a long shot so like having that reinforced sometimes is, is really interesting but yeah the nitro guys are amazing i mean like taking them around south africa was such a privilege and and you know i keep in touch with them a lot and hopefully some of them will come out soon again now that you're back in your homeland and you've started snake farm are you glad to be back in africa <laughs> Yeah, I mean, I was just, I've been here now for eight months and I went back to the States to film a documentary series, Bahamas. So like, you know, America is amazing and has huge amounts of opportunity for certain things. And I feel like Snake Farm really needed, you know, those first few years in the States having access to Amazon and access to, you know, labs and CT scanners and all that. But now being back in South Africa, a lot of the stuff that I learned in the States, I have to distill down to the simplest form because you don't have CT machines and you don't have, you know, all the, the, the you can't just order something if Amazon have it the next day. So being back home, you know, besides the whole being close to nature and hearing hyenas every night and seeing bush babies and that, it's, it's created a resourcefulness that I kind of lost living in the state somewhat. Like not, not lost, but used a lot less because it's such a consumer driven world. So Snake Farm is a non-profit organization. Tell us about that and what, like, what's your goal with that? 
So there's um, basically Snake Farm um, Incorporated is a for-profit organization in the state, um, yeah. but we make anti-venom for dogs. So basically, um, you know, the, the current anti-venom production model uses venomous snakes and horses. Ours uses non-venomous snake blood. So mm -hmm. it's, it's quite revolutionary. Um, so we started our safety and then clinical trials in San Diego, and we've treated about 50 dogs so far. And then now, um, you know, the idea was, you know, can make money in the states in the veterinary market it's actually quite lucrative um, and it's exactly what we need to do for research um, so we did that for three years we finished our study late last year we finished our lab in the states and then thinking about you know how we could get this to humans i was like well yeah africa has a huge snake bite problem huge anti-venom problem and not a lot of money um so i was like well let's start a non-profit in africa that can do the same thing start with uh, veterinary trials and then eventually go to human trials in a in a like with a vision to make anti-venom accessible to everyone that's been bitten you know a person dies every three minutes from snake bites is two and a half million amputations a year um it's, it was just called like the biggest medical emergency of our time by the world health organization a few months ago and it's a, one of the disease processes where we have a cure but pharmaceutical companies are electing not to make it anymore because it's not profitable oh wow so the idea yeah it's, it's a if you search like anti-venom it's, it's a massive issue right now um in africa half of africa ran out of anti-venom two years ago um and it's like it's, it's and where we live actually there was a bite recently where the person didn't get anti-venom so the idea is try and make money in the states on our veterinary products so we can fund you know, cheap or free anti-venom around the world. Um, and, and the nice thing is I've worked in 20 countries with snakes, so I have a lot of access in a lot of places, but I thought, what better place to start than home and then spread this out through, through you know, Africa and the whole world. Yeah. Working with some of the world's most feared and stereotyped reptiles, educating people about these misunderstood creatures plays a massive role in what you do. So you go out into local communities and educate them on the snakes? Is that right? Yeah, we are, our facility is actually open to the public. Um, we don't charge anyone to come in, so we have a lot of our snakes there. We have like 30 snakes or so. Um, so a smattering of the local indigenous deadly and non-venomous snakes and then some of our research snakes. So the community can come in there anytime and learn. And then we do, you know, functions at schools. We just did one at university last week. Um, and then wherever, like, people are willing to listen. Um, you know, sometimes we even have guys standing at the gas station with snakes and just talk about snakes because it's such a cultural fear here. Yep. So in that World Health Organization uh, paper, they said one of the big things is snake bite avoidance. Um, and, and with that comes education. So yep. like the idea is if you can stop the snake bite happening, you don't need antivenom, but there'll still be a number of bites that you need antivenom for. So if we can stop it before it's an issue, that's kind of our big drive right now. So we're trying, you know, with the community, we, we hired local guys to help us build and everything, and they're spreading the word. And as people come around, you know, we'll sometimes have like 300 people at our awarenesses and everyone's petrified of snakes in the beginning. By the end, almost everyone's taking a photo with a snake. And that, that's kind of the perception shift we're trying to create, especially in the young people. Yeah. Um, it's like these, these things should be respected, not necessarily feared, but definitely respected. Because with most animals, you know, all animals, I'd say, whatever your instincts tell you to do, is exactly wrong you know whatever whatever you think you should be doing is, is probably opposite to what you should be doing um okay. and like understanding that where people act from a place of mindfulness rather than from a place of fear you can avoid a lot of a lot of issues for the animal and for the people you know um, we had an encounter with an elephant where you know if it had gone poorly the elephant and some people could have died um 
and that was just because there was panic and you know just having the right mindset in a small amount of time you know kind of changes the outcome Absolutely. Uh, there's, a, there's an old saying you know if you're going to panic panic slowly um at least it you know, can be useful uh yes i'd have to say that well i came in winter for four months and so i only ever saw a uh, one dead black mamba that was quite a big one and I saw a, a baby black mamba which was just we just outside but um, I had an encounter with a scorpion the very first morning I was in the bush and I have to say I, I panicked very slowly because I just about I didn't realise it was on my breakfast and I just about put it in my mouth yep so that, wow. was, that was fun it was a red scorpion too that's a good <laughs> That's a, that's, a, that's a good introduction to Africa. Yeah, welcome. And then it came, then it, then another one decided to sleep in my bed. And I, yeah, that was not fun. <laughs> yeah. All right. But yeah, in- I mean, Africa, Africa has this. Yeah, Africa has this skill of pushing the buttons that you least like pushed. And it's it's just interesting in seeing that because it's so primal, you know. Yep. There's such a, a thin line between life and death, um, in everything and every aspect. Oh um, yeah. That makes it you know. A lot of people are very, very present because if you're not, you die. You know, it's, oh. a, it's, it's definitely a mindset. And by picking such a career, you must have the scars to tell a few tales of their own. I know you spent a week in the ICU and lost a bit of your finger and you lost part of your memory for three months from a snake bite. What snake bit you and what happened? The, yeah, the ICU thing is interesting because it was kind of a, you know, a lot of these things in, in life, you get huge disasters or massive lessons. And it was a snake that, but you know, by some is the the main that we're researching now in the states. It was a Southern Pacific rattlesnake, and at the time, you know, our understanding of venom and antivenoms was very rudimentary as a as a community, as a medical community. And the snake, basically, when it bit me, it was one of my my snakes I was keeping. Mm-hmm. It bit me like twice in the hand. I immediately like knew it was bad. I just didn't know how bad it was. And I'd had a rattlesnake bite before and lost a fingertip. And I was like, okay, well. You know, I kind of know how this goes, and it's like not not losing consciousness, not anything. It's just like a, a, a lot of pain for many months. And I jumped in my car, drove to the hospital, walked inside, wrote down what bit me, wrote down the doctor who treated my other bite's name, and wrote down my name, I think. And then I woke up, you know, three days later in ICU, naked in the fetal position. <laughs> yeah. And I was like, oh, what, what happened? And over the course of the next few months, kind of figured out the story. But essentially the snake now, we know that these snakes, the Southern Pacific rattlesnakes, are, have a highly variable venom. And they, they even have their own toxin that is like basically independent from other rattlesnakes. And they can change their venom. So they can, you know, in one season or one lifetime or, you know, one canyon or one individual go from myotoxic to neurotoxic to cardiotoxic to hemotoxic or a combination of all of them. Wow. And just as luck would have it, the snake that bit me was exclusively neurotoxic. There was no swelling, there was no pain. It just switched me off. It basically yeah. um, like turned my entire body off for essentially three and a half, four days. Yeah. And what happened was the doctor who treated me, so found out later, and I'll put it in, in chronological order, um, a friend of mine was driving to my house, saw my car parked outside the hospital with the door open on the sidewalk, and he's like, oh, that's not good. Went inside, found out what happened, that's how my family found me, because I was at home alone when this happened. Yeah. And basically, I walked inside, and this I found out two weeks later from a nurse there, I walked inside, wrote down what, hit, what had happened, and or what bit me in the doctor's name collapsed. Um, they intubated me on the ground because I was entirely unresponsive. Um, they didn't have a ventilator there, so they breathed with an ambu bag and put me in an ambulance, drove me 40 minutes to the closest hospital. 
they threw me on the ventilator and watched me for essentially three days and, and I was totally unresponsive in a coma and eventually the doctor was like screw it give him South African antivenom see what happens and anti-venom and I woke up half an hour later which at that time we didn't think that anti-venom works on rattlesnakes which you know guinea pig number one I was like oh wow so you know then after that I, I woke up for the next day so from day three to day four I could breathe you know by myself I still had the, the, the endotracheal tube in but when I would fall asleep the ventilator would kick in because I'd stop breathing wow. so essentially it switched off my breathing for four days but as you know, as you mentioned, one of the most interesting things, and something that's now also hindsight come come to light, is the neurotoxins don't just mess with your central nervous system in the way of stopping breathing; they actually mess with your mind. And and basically, I had one and a half months retrograde amnesia from before the bite even had venom in me, and one and a half months after the bite. So it basically, like erased my memory for three months. And there was an interesting paper that came out recently about the high um, mortality rates in snake bites of Sri Lanka that commit suicide. And, you know, one of the, the, the schools of thought is that like, it messes with your neurology so much that it can put you in a depressed slash suicidal state. The other school of thought is because Sri Lanka is such a big karmic Buddhist country that people think if they're bitten by a snake, they should die, that they don't have a reason to be alive. So, it's you know, it's interesting now looking back at all of the stuff. At the time, it was just a huge disaster. I thought I, I nearly died. But now looking back at it, it was like really useful information. And, and as I said, the, the, the main snake in San Diego that bites all the dogs in our study is the southern Pacific rattlesnake. And it's made it a really interesting research snake because it's so variable. You know, most like where we live, there's a you know five or six snakes that can kill you. And unless you see the snake, you won't really know what the venom or the snake is. With the southern Pacific rattlesnake, we know that most of the bites are southern Pacific rattlesnake, so we can eliminate the variable out. And then the variability is actually the venom in a single snake species, yep. which makes research exceedingly interesting because that's the issue anti-venom has now you know if you make anti-venom for you know Durban it's not necessarily going to work in Joburg and if you make anti-venom in Australia it's not necessarily going to work in South Africa because you actually have to have the antigen the, the venom you know that's causing the, the the damage to create antibodies in the horse wow. and that's where our anti-venom's difference is we're not using a one-year-old manufactured antibody we're using a 20 million year old evolution system in snakes we don't challenge the snakes at all so we don't inject them with venom or anything the antibodies we get out are actually just in snakes because yeah. venomous snakes have been eating non-venomous snakes since there was venom non-venomous snakes have been building resistance to that venom since it's been around so it's been this evolutionary arms race between venom and protection and what we figured out is you can just use the snakes you know, protection against snakes. So, like, why, why include horses and venomous snakes and all that when you can just use pythons and boas? Yeah, I think I read somewhere you wrote, um, you spoke about how the venomous snakes also carry like an um, something inside their blood that protects them from their own bite, their own venom. And you're looking at exactly. Yeah. So yeah, basically, like venomous. If you think about, it, you bite your tongue and your lips all the time, right? If you're a venomous snake and you did that, you'd die. Yeah. Um, so like that doesn't make sense evolutionarily. So the, so the venomous snakes definitely have resistance to their own venom. We know that. Um, what we start looking at is snakes that eat them. Yeah. So like king snakes and in South Africa, file snakes and king cobras and things like that. And then we found that they obviously have ridiculously amazing resistance and, and can neutralize bites very well. But the big coup for us that was, you know, brand new information was the prey animals, the animals that actually get eaten by venomous snakes. So like cobras and taipans and, you know, snakes like that will eat non-venomous snakes. 
so like pythons and boas and rat snakes and things that are non-venomous have even higher resistance to venomous snakes and venomous snakes themselves wow. because when they're young they get based upon so yeah. basically if you think of a python living in pans right snakes that can eat all the venomous snakes except death adders so they they basically have to get past about two meters before they too big to eat yep. so essentially in those first you know two meters of life they you know have to either survive being bitten or you know not proceed so it's basically you know taking instead of taking the the anti-venom from venomous snakes which is dangerous we use non-venomous snakes and that's why it's called snake farm it's double entendre because you can basically farm snakes mm -hmm. we do all of our production and that inside shipping containers so you can have a, a farm of snakes non-venomous snakes kept them keep them very much like chickens you know because they're not toxic they're not dangerous they're really easy to keep and you just extract blood once a, a month and you sort of have as much anti-venom as, as snakes you can get so that's a that's the main focus of snake farm now is like what's the the simplest most elegant most reproducible inexpensive solution to anti-venom and and the answer is snakes like literally the problem is the solution yeah so what advice would you have for a person who is wanting to come to africa or is coming to africa and is afraid of snakes you know the, the best thing is you know <laughs> to be aware like you know the when, when i go into areas that are high snakes and i'm going to be you know walking thick bushes and all that it's like you know, wear boots, wear long pants, wear long sleeves, just another layer of protection. And then also, like, look, you know, it's, it's our eyes are designed to see snakes, especially some of the venomous ones and that. So, you know, being on a lookout is a big thing. And then making sure that if you're going to remote areas that, you know, the people that you're with, the game lodge or the, the eco-tour company or whoever, has a protocol for snake bites. Because where I live, it's an hour and a half to the closest hospital that has a ventilator and anti-venom and mambas can kill you in 40 minutes or 30 minutes or, or, or depending on the bite. Mm -hmm. So like having a contingency plan in case of a snake bite is, is not a bad idea or at least asking what the deal is. Most places don't have anti-venom in the field because the current anti-venom can be really dangerous if you administer it incorrectly or if the person's allergic to it. Yep. So the best course of action is going to a hospital that does have anti-venom. The problem is not all hospitals stock it and not all hospitals that do stock it have it in stock. So it's like just, you know, when you when, when coming to Africa, speaking to the people ahead of time, being like, hey, do you guys have a, a protocol for snake bite treatment? Like, how do you get out? Where's the closest hospital? Do they have anti-venom? That kind of stuff is, is a question I usually ask. But most times, you know, I travel with anti-venom because I'm, I'm a high-risk candidate for a bite. Yeah. Um, but for a normal tourist, you know, just, you know, covering up, being aware, trying to avoid snake bites. And if it does happen, being with an operator that has a contingency plan. Because, you know, it's not just snakes. You know, being on, on a lot of these film shoots and that, I'd, I'd be safety officer or maybe in charge of safety. And I'm like, uh, the highest likelihood we have of dying is in a car. Yeah. You know, being in a bad car accident on these bad roads or on these, you know, wherever. And then the you know contingency plan is the same, whether it's a car or a big cat or a shark or a snake. It's like you know, how do we stabilize a person? Where's the closest hospital? What you know, what resources do we have there? You don't want to try and figure that out. You know, once someone's been bitten, it's always good having that kind of in the back of your mind. Yeah. All right. So when are snakes at their most active? Are they? Is it night, day, summer, winter? Depends on the state. Depends on the country. Depends on on the you know what's happening. Um, you know. Yeah, in most places, snakes are more active spring through fall or autumn. And then depending on the species, they can be diurnal, like mambas, come out in the middle of the day. Or crepuscular, like, you know, cobras and puffeters will come out at sunset. Or entirely nocturnal, like some snakes only come out at night. So wow. it's kind okay. of take your pick on what you're going to see. And then seasonally, like some parts like Durban, where I'm from, 
there's snakes everywhere all year round. I'm obviously more in the rainy season. And then up here where I am now at altitude, you know, there's no snakes now. But as soon as it starts getting warmer and rainy, then there'll be snakes out. So it kind of depends on where you are and, and what's, what's happening. Okay. Is there any time of the year when they are more deadly than others, like perhaps when they're breeding? Anecdotally, from the study that we've seen, and this is just looking at data and it kind of makes sense evolutionarily, yep. it seems like in the early spring, like as snakes come out of their like rest periods, sort of go into breeding and hunting and all that, they, they may have, their venom might be more toxic. And one of the schools of thoughts on that is they've had you know, three months or so to sequester the venom, not use it, and basically make it more potent essentially yeah. so during the summer when they're eating a lot and using a lot of venom it doesn't have as much time to marinate probably is a better word <laughs> um, <laughs> yeah. so, so like in the beginning of the season you think a snake comes out of a hibernation hasn't eaten in a while has all the super potent venom it also shouldn't be missing meals because it needs every meal it can get whereas late in the season when it's had a bunch of meals and it's bred and it's fat and happy you know, it doesn't have to be as kick-ass toxic because if a meal gets away it's not so bad yeah so that's like and that's on just on rattlesnakes what we've seen in the beginning of the season January through sort of April yep. the bites seem a lot warmer and then as the season progresses they get like less and less intense till the end of the season is like you know sort of insignificant not insignificant but like not nearly as bad like in the beginning of the season you see a lot of bad bites yeah oh wow okay and which African snake is most likely to lash out and bite you and is it venomous no snake will lash out and bite you on this Listen, so like the easiest way to think of snakes is like think of circles around them and like the first meter is a red circle, the second meter is an orange circle and the third meter is a green circle. Yeah. And it's kind of when you enter those circles, you, you know, you're initiating a response from the snake and it may seem like lashing out, but it's actually just reciprocating what you're giving. Yeah. So if you stood three meters away from a black mama, it's not going to bite you. Yeah. It's probably going to run away. If you go two meters away, it's going to stand up and get angry. You get one meter away, it's going to bite you. So, yeah. the, you know, la- lashing out is really dependent on what you're doing to the snake. Um, that being said, you know, there's a mom and you walk past, which there's been a bunch of cases like that, they will bite you. Whereas, like, gaboon vipers, there's, there's stories of people standing on gaboon vipers and not being bitten. Okay. What is the prettiest African snake in your... Th- Oh, by far the gaboon viper. I mean, they, they're absolutely insane looking animals. They, I actually was lucky enough to find a pair. Um, my neighbor had a pair of males combating in, in, their, in their backyard when I, about two or three months ago. And there's a bunch of photos on the, on the website, but they're, they're probably the most beautiful snake in the world. Um, not even, you know, it's just Africa. They're very like geometric and pastel and pretty. It's a wide variety of, of amazingness. Yeah. Now the spitting snakes. I know there's one in Namibia, there's one in Kenya, there's a Mozambican one that I know of, and they spit venom. Why are they so dangerous? Well, the, the, the thinking behind spitting is it's basically a deterrent, like a deterrent mechanism where they don't want to bite anything, they want to keep predators and you know, potential enemies far away. So they spit up to two meters um, with incredible accuracy, and there's been a bunch of tests that we did and other people have done um, that show that they're, they are sort of aiming for the eyes, they're doing a pattern with their head and all that. But for the venom to be you know, painful on contact with the eyes, it has to be profoundly cytotoxic, which is self-destroying. Yeah. So all spitting cobras, venoms are really, really cytotoxic. So that means when they bite you, they just it's basically like it just dissolves your tissue. So that, that's what makes them so dangerous. The spitting is bad, like, you know, it's not fun, but it's not dead. Like, you know, in the worst case scenario, you go blind. 
there's not a deadly response, but the lights from this mini cover is already with the with the trouble lines. Yeah. So we talked about this just before and about how snake bites have been declared as the world's biggest hidden health crisis as of May this year. Is that due to the lack of anti-venom or just lack of education around snakes or what do you think? Yeah, the education levels kind of stay the same. Um, but it's definitely an anti-venom problem. So there were two large manufacturers of anti-venom in Africa that stopped producing anti-venom about three years ago. Um, in America, the, the main anti-venoms, Black Widow, Coral Snake, and Rattlesnake, got, they stopped producing that in the 2000s and was replaced by another product. So in America, they only have a single product that they can treat, you know, um, snake bites with. And then you have places like Sri Lanka, where it's the second highest bed snake bites in the world, and they have no specific, um, and they use anti-venom from India and Thailand and places like that. So not necessarily an exposure or education thing it's just it's a disease process that we once had a cure for that now we don't have a cure so like most people think medicine progresses to you know better designs and better drugs and better things um whereas snake bite it's devolving to less options less anti-venom less um treatment and that's that's kind of why it's such a crisis and also you know we live in the information age now so if we can sort of know about these problems a lot more you know in south america and other places I've worked, if someone dies from a snake bite, they don't go call the World Health Organization make a big deal out of it. It's just kind of, you know, part of the course. So now, you know, with the, the advance of medicine and, and, you know, basically being able to treat a lot of diseases, um, everyone's freaking out because we're going backwards in snake bites and snake bites. Yeah, that's um, pretty scary that, the, that there may not be, you know, any relief for anyone that gets snake bites if something's not done. Yeah. And, you know, it's a lonely place, being the first snake, you know, it's, you don't know what's going to happen. Like, even me, with, with the knowledge I have of snakes and snake bites in my body, and then every time I get the first snake, you know, it's a, it's a roll of the dice. It can be everything and nothing as far as the venom goes. The venom can be highly variable, and then there may or may not be anti-venom available. So it's like, you know, if you the bites, you're in hospital, the doctors come look at you, there's nothing they can do for you other than watch you decompose. Um, and it's just, it's a lonely place. And thankfully, I've almost always had massive access to Western medical care and anti-venom interventions and that, whereas a lot of people in these third world countries just don't. They basically go to the hospital, get pain meds and antibiotics and get sent home, which is just you know, mind-boggling. Wow, that's just crazy. So obviously in your line of work and South Africa being your homeland, you've travelled quite a bit throughout Africa. What would you say is your most favourite place to visit in Africa? If you had asked me a year ago, I would have said something different, but I've seen so much in the last year that it's kind of hard to pick one. Probably where I live. <laughs> you know, to be like, totally like northeastern South Africa. Because it's like the, the, the semi-tropical rainforest comes down just into where we live. You've got true savannah, you've got like amazing reefs and sharks and stuff. You've got tons of crocodiles and big mammals. So it's maybe basically Kruger National Park into the ocean with a little bit of rainforest. So it's like anywhere you go, it's different habitats and different animals. And oh, Madagascar. Madagascar is pretty mind-blowing. Like, uh, one thing I'd recommend is if, you know, if people haven't been to Madagascar, go. It's, it's going away like, very, very quickly. And it's really, out of all the places I've been in the world, it's probably one of the most bizarre as far as animals and plants and just everything goes. It's very, very strange. Wow, okay. All right. Along with running Snake Farm, you also offer eco-tours. Tell us about that. Yeah, basically, the, just you know, going into the whole tourism is the future thing. You know, the work that we do, you know, all the years on the road, and then I stayed at a bunch of lodges and different retreats and research camps and whatnot, and decide you know, if I was going to 
has the highest variety of things to do. So where we're located, it's about an hour and a half to Mozambique. It's about an hour to Swaziland, about 30 minutes to the beach. I mean, there's elephants in our backyard. Um, you know, so the eco-tours that we offer is pretty much like come stay at Snake Farm and then pick whatever you want to do. Because I, I filmed like maybe seven or eight TV shows in the immediate area where we are. So there's a you know, hyper abundance of things to do. And oftentimes people come to South Africa and they so scatch them. Cape Town and Durban here and there and spend the whole time flying around where I feel like you know a lot of the African stuff is if you stop for as you know from saying Kruger if you stop you see so much more than doing the drive-by you know selfie kind of tour so you know kind of roll the TV production experience in with the animal expertise and a little bit of fun and you know it's basically the same thing that the Nitro Circus guys did when they came out here. It's, it's kind of the same venue. You know, it's like, do you want to buy the sharks? Do you want to you know, go look at crocodiles? Do you want to you know, sit and look at bush babies? It's, it's kind of a a la carte menu. And on Snake Farm itself, you know, we've, we've got you know, a lot of animals that just occur there. So you know, I've spent the last two months there pretty much nonstop without leaving. And every day something new is happening. Um, it's a massive piece of, of bush. It's like 1.2 kilometers by half kilometers wide. Absolutely pristine. So you've got you know, the most bizarre mantises and spiders and scorpions and snakes and all sorts of Yeah, it's, it's a very nice property. Living in Los Angeles for 10 years and like having your neighbors all next to you and that. You know, now if a single car drives by, you're kind of like, who's that? <laughs> you know, like, <laughs> who, who's driving on my street? You know, the cell phone signals aren't great there. Um, we don't have electricity, we have solar, we don't have running water, we don't have toilets, flushing toilets, we use compost toilets. So it's like a very easy detox from the Western lifestyle. And, and it's funny how quickly people adjust. You know, so you, you basically have their cell phone signal, you have you know, electricity, you know, the stars at night are absolutely mind. You know, I, we don't have TV, you know, so like for a, a Westerner to come there and sort of immerse, it's just, it's a big reset button. But you also work with sharks. Well, my like, whole life story in a nutshell is like, I worked at the snake park first, and then, so I went to do the commercial diving degree, and then realized I didn't really want to do that, went into, you know, corporate world and moved to the States and got back into animals. And then after signing up with Discovery to do some shows, like, um, they said, you know, can you dive? And I'm like, yeah, I can actually commercially dive without free readers and surface spine and all that. So the very first year I was, I was on Shark Week filming and I did a Shark episode. And, and since then, it's kind of the filmmaking, the animal expertise and the commercial diving merged into one thing where I can use all three skills pretty successfully. So, you know, I've, I've developed and, you know, sold Shark Week shows. I produce film and sometimes I'm on camera and that. But it's pretty much, I love working with sharks because they're so undirectable. Even a snake, you can direct in a certain way. Like if it's going in a certain direction, you can turn around and you can do that. Whereas sharks, they do their sharky thing and that's it. Like either they want to play or they leave. Yeah, and you've got shark rash, I hear. Yeah. Oh, yeah, that just ages ago. Yeah. Yeah, basically, we were trying to tag sharks, but the way that they did them before is you basically catch them on a hook and then pull them onto the boat and do your work up in the back. And I was like, I'm pretty sure we can grab one atraumatically and just work it up on the back of the boat. Okay. So, um, a place film a lot in Stewart Cove. Um, that's where we did the Shaquille and Neil Sharking show and a bunch of other stuff. And you basically just get them, they're eating at the back of the boat, and eventually one jumps onto the swim steps. So I jumped on it, and they, the sharks are exceedingly powerful. Like, they're yeah. just pure muscle. And yeah, the first, like, three or four got away. In the struggling, you have a whole forearm. It's, it's like, you know, imagine you know, grabbing a dog that doesn't want to be held, but all its skin's made of sandpaper. Yeah, you know, it's. The weird thing is working with sharks and crocodiles, you know, you always get little nicks and bruises and cuts and things and that just because they're so big. 
versus like working with snakes either goes exceedingly well or really bad. <laughs> um, you know, usually the, the worst case before really bad is you get pooped on or something like that. But you know, usually with snakes, you walk away with everything intact. Sharks and crocodiles, you can do everything right, everything goes perfectly, you can still have a broken finger or a, you know, a big gash or something. Yeah. So what would you say is the best thing about living, working and travelling in Africa? People, eh? I mean, the people, like, the Africa. I mean, it's probably the Africa itself. You know, the, the vibe, as I said, you know, people are, are, seem to be a lot more present. And I think that's, you know, less screen time, less money, probably is the way to explain it. You know, if you don't have a lot of money, you have to get creative, you know? We're not on top of the food chain, we may act like we are, but an elephant or a leopard or a lion or a hippo or a crocodile or a snake could kill us at any time. So I think being in Africa, people are present, the animals are present, the rain is dramatic, it's like nothing is, is half-assed now. Yeah. And I think that's why Africa is a continent that captures the hearts and souls of travellers travellers and people from around the world. Yeah, I mean, yeah, since, the, yeah, since, since the beginning, like, I, I drove, yesterday I drove from Shishlubi, which is where I live, on the coast, all the way up to Johannesburg, and I went through the area where the British and the Zulus from this place called Blood River, another place, place called um, and there were these epic battles of either the British like totally winning or the British totally losing and like just gnarly battles. And I drove for like six hours yesterday and seeing where these people were is just mind blowing. Like it's difficult in the car, you know, air conditioning and your, your music playing and that. And it's like these guys were not only like doing this stuff in Africa, but they were trying to kill each other while doing it. I'm like, that's so gnarly. And it's like, there must be something about Africa for someone to come all the way from the UK, all the way into the middle of the bush to fight your locals. And it's, it's pretty mind-blowing. Yeah. There's definitely something. So once, once people can uproot a few hundred people in South Africa, you know, your personally or film crews or whatever, and, you know, everyone says the same thing. It's like, I've, I've changed from being in Africa. It's like, yeah, it's, there's something, yeah, there's something, you know, very, you know, it's very human. It's almost like a silent drumbeat. <laughs> that just sort of yeah. aligns with everyone once they step foot on the continent. An auditory version of that is play anyone the theme song from Lion King and see how their like skin bristles and how excited <laughs> they get. And that's purely a cappella African song. Like that's, you know, my, my guys that I work with at Snake Farm, they'll start singing in the middle of the day gospel songs. And it's like, it's as good as the Lion King. And it's like, you, you feel, you don't have to be African to appreciate that. And you still feel a connectedness to it. That's that drumbeat that you talk about. There's something, you know, it's something in Africa. Yeah, absolutely. So what would you say has been your most pivotal or memorable moment for you on your travels within Africa? The elephant gnarly um, for, for a number of reasons. And it was just, uh, it was, out of all the things I've done in Africa, there were like, there were some that were like, oh, holy shit, that was scary. Or, oh, holy shit, that was amazing. Or, or whatever iteration. But the, the elephant charge that we had in Savo, like that was, it was a gateway moment for me that like really changed my perception entirely of animals and of specifically elephants. So that would probably be the, the most, um, like, you know, if I was laying on my de- deathbed, that would be probably one of the things that flashed before my mind and be like, oh yeah, wow, I just Yeah, that happened. Yeah. yeah. And what do you think is one of the biggest misconceptions people have about Africa? It's dangerous. And, you know, the general consensus is Africa is like this you know, scary, gnarly, dangerous place. But really, it's just a, a bit of an unforgiving place if you don't know what you're doing. But that being said, you know, I've, I've had people come over here with no experience traveling whatsoever and just like absolutely loving Africa. I mean, especially South Africa, it's kind of like Africa white. It's not like full-on gnarly Africa. 
like you, you know, most of the time two or three hours away from a mall where you can buy a laptop and things like that. Whereas when you get into parts of like Mozambique and Zambia and that, no, there's there's no chance of getting anything. So yeah, I'd say the biggest misconception is that it's, it's dangerous. Yeah. Beside the snake advice, what would be one piece of general travel advice you have for anyone wanting to travel to Africa? Get a good itinerary uh, or a good tour guide because, you know, you can go to a place and, you know, two people can go to a place and have two totally different experiences. So, you know, a lot of people kind of make the mistake of trying to see too much. And uh, South Africa is massive, you know, it's the size of Texas. Yeah. So trying to see everything in one trip or people make the mistake too of coming for a week. It's like most people travel from, you know, not Europe or like, you know, people obviously travel from Europe, but if you're coming from America, you're totally, totally hosed on the, the jet bag. So you have to give up two, three days to like just get normal again if you, if you don't do it properly. And then you try and squeeze in a you know, Texas-sized you know, uh, country in you know, four days. It just doesn't work. So I'd say that the biggest thing would be give it enough time and you know, kind of cherry-pick the places you want to go. It's like, for me, it's either East Coast or West Coast. You can do both, but the travel gets a bit much. So it's like, you know, obviously, I have an affinity to the, the East Coast. So like basically pick two or three things to do and do them for two or three days yeah um because a lot of a lot of people come out here and they do the drive-by selfie thing and it's like oh how's your African yeah look at all these photos like yeah how much time did you spend like relaxing it's like no we're moving the whole time <laughs> like, well that's not you know worth the way to see Africa yeah so why do you love Africa there's a, there's a movie which yeah if you haven't seen it um it's called Jock of the Bushveld um, and it's a really cool story about this Irish immigrant that comes to South Africa seeking his fortune and basically goes to a place called Barberton oh, yes. to look for gold. Yeah, and, and the story is about this man in the Staffordshire Terrier and the adventures they get into. And I watched it as a kid when I was five or six years old and like sort of resonated with me. And, and now, you know, in the States, like the idea of going and living off grid with animals and the hyenas and stuff like that is just, it's not, not possible. There's very few places in the world that you can that so for me it's kind of like the jock of the bush faults of two, you know, 2020 you know you know if you take away the cell phones and the laptops and the cars like we are basically doing the same thing as, as these these you know sort of pioneers it's this pioneering spirit yeah so in africa i feel like the pioneering spirit sort of you know sort of what's the word i'm looking for the resourceful pioneering sort of like make it work spirits is is really strong whereas everywhere else that I've been to has been more, unless it's a third world country like Peru, has been more like status quo. It's like, okay, cool, you go to school, you go to university, you get a job, you have a kid, you get a car, you get a house, you get a pension, and that's it. And I'm like, I don't really like that trajectory. I much prefer, yeah, I mean, like, you, you know, there's these places like, like the where I lived in Manzi, um, Sandusha, in, in like the southern part of, of where we are now, there's very few places like that left in the world, and, and it sort of dawned on me. Why am I going to visit these places and living in Los Angeles where I could live in these places and visit Los Angeles? Yeah. And that's where I think um, you know, the African thing, you know, South America, I love it. It's amazing. It's not Africa. You know, there's no elephants. No, Australia, amazing. I love it. There's no vipers. There's no elephants. New Zealand, amazing. I love it. There's no snakes. <laughs> no, Hawaii, amazing. No snakes. It's like, so all the things I like and need, and maybe it's because of where I grew up, but all the things that I think are important like, only really occur in, in South Africa, maybe a little bit Mozambique, but mostly South Africa. Yeah. All right, so what's next for you? What have you got going on? 
I'm going to jump out of a plane a whole bunch tomorrow <laughs> and then meet with the university on Monday and then back to, to Snake Farm on the coast and then, you know, pretty much trying to, there's a population of these massive bull sharks that live like about a mile from my house or 1.6 kilometers. Yeah. So trying to figure out what's different about them and all that. And then snake season starts. So we've already had a few call outs for, you know, a couple snakes and that. So then it's just, you know, goes into rainy season. Everything's growing, breeding, going crazy. And, you know, we, we farming snakes. So it's trying to stay in Africa as much as possible to try and work around here just because a, it helps the economy. B, it helps my, my sanity not having to travel. travel. Plus, you know, I've, I've been guilty of the African drive-by thing too, where we spend, you know, 10 days, yeah, we do 10 things and we film everything, but we don't experience it. Yeah. So I'm trying to work more like being an African in Africa and just being, you know, and that's the, the last two months that I was doing, it was just really nice after, you know, flying around the world and that to just, you know, wake up in the morning and be like, I don't have to go anywhere. I just can go look for snakes or spiders or nothing you know and 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 do that so that's my future definitely more snake work i mean we're trying to fast track our research in south africans it's somewhat frustrating because as bad as the snake bite problem is the you know the this the system isn't designed to be the research medical pharmaceutical system it's designed to be expensive and you know really laborious to keep smaller players out of it so big drug companies obviously have a team of scientists, team of lawyers, and a shit ton of money. And when you start doing disruptive technology like this, you know, you have to get a ton of money and lawyers and things like that. And so it's, that's the hard part. The theory behind it's pretty easy. But now we're fighting an uphill battle with, you know, like a person dies every three minutes and we have a solution, but it may take five years to get it to people. Mm. And, and, you know, that's... That's a, it's a tough thing in the morning to wake up and think about that, where it's like, we have a solution, but the system isn't moving fast enough. Well, I wish you all the best in that, because that's a real uphill battle going up against those pharmaceutical companies trying to get something new through. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> challenges, it's great. <laughs> so if anyone would like to find out, find out about what you're up to or would like to get involved, help out or volunteer, what is the best way for them to do that? Is that just to contact you directly? Yeah, on our page, snakefarm.org, because snakefarm.com is the American company, and then snakefarm.org is specifically the non-profit in South Africa. So on there, there's a how-to-help page. Yeah. It basically just talks about, you know, eco-tours, what people can do, all that, you know, what donations we, we, we can really use. You know, because where we are is a really poor community. We saw a, a boy the other day wearing a school a girl's dress to school because he didn't have any clothes, and eventually he says he didn't want to go to school because he didn't have a uniform. Um, and that was, you know, kind of brutal because it's like this kid wants to learn but doesn't have the clothes to go to school. So, yeah, that kind of stuff, you know, it, it seems like something small when people come out but it makes a huge difference for, for these people's lives. Wow, cool. Well, hey, Donald, I just want to say a big thank you to you because without amazing people like yourself, this project could never have come about and my love and passion for Africa could not have been shared with the world on such a grand scale. Just before we wrap up, is there anything else you'd like to add before the interview finishes no the you know the one thing that's like it's, it's become very apparent in south africa is people talking about education mm-hmm. um and people like well yeah you know you need a matric and you will need to you know finish high school you need a degree you need all this to do anything meaningful and i i dropped out of high school i i went to college for or went to university for a bit and decided it wasn't for me I was working in medicine already and realized that, you know, people don't, you know, just because someone doesn't have a degree or a certification or that doesn't mean they can't change the world. You know, Bill Gates 
Steve Jobs, all of these people, Einstein even, with, with, with problem child in school. So, you know, one of the big things would be like, you don't have to be a, a rocket scientist to, to change the world. You know, you can, you can do it with whatever you have around you. So that's the, the big thing I've been, been telling a lot of people because they ask, they want to come work at Sag Farm and what certification do you need? I'm like, nothing. Come here, we'll teach you. There's no one, te- no one teaches what we have. Even if you have a university degree, you're going to through the same sort of education process. So that would be the big takeaway. It's like anyone can make a difference. They just have to basically want it. You know, it's, it's not a, a matter of like, oh, if I had this, then I could do that. If I had that, I could do this. It's like if you have the desire, you can do anything. Well, it has truly been my pleasure to chat with you today. And I look forward to talking to you again and hearing what you've been up to. So we will catch you again soon. Thank you so much. Thank you. It's been an absolute pleasure chatting to you. And yeah, hopefully we'll see you in Africa soon. Yes, absolutely. All right. Hey, thanks, Donald. Thanks, Bye. Thank you, Donald. And for listeners, that is an excerpt of the interview that I did with Donald Schultz a few weeks ago. The rest of his interview will be featured in our upcoming book for the I Heart Africa project. So Follow us on Instagram, Facebook under I Heart Africa Project to hear more about the launch date for that book and also to check out more podcast episodes. Now, if anyone would like to get hold of Donald, the best way to do that is either go onto Instagram or Facebook and look up Snake Farm, which is Snake and PH Farm, South Africa, or you can go onto their website www.snakephafm.com snakefarm.org but if you go to our website iheartafricaproject.com all Donald's contact information is under the Meet Africa tab wonderful it's been a pleasure talking to Donald today and I hope for all you listeners out there you learnt something he is an amazing fascinating person and make sure you subscribe to this podcast as we have more wonderful episodes coming your way with the most amazing fascinating and interesting people who all share Dear love of Africa.